Turn to Leviticus chapter 9. Please, I should say please. I'm going to read this. Leviticus chapter 9, beginning right in verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. The fat of the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh of the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. The fat pieces of the ox and of the ram and the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver. They put the fat pieces on the uh, the breast and he burnt the fat pieces on the altar. The breast and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, the pieces of fat on the altar. Then all the people saw it. They shouted and fell on their faces. Let's pray together. Father, in the words words of the old hymnist, George Matheson, divine spirit illumined to me the words of the Lord. Show me the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories. Teach us the depths of meaning hidden in the songs of Zion. Raise us to the heights of aspiration that is reached by the wings of the prophet. 
Lift me to the summit of faith that is trod by the feet of the apostles. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. Throughout our study of the book of Leviticus, um, we've been working to answer uh, really the question that is posed by Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The psalmist there goes on to answer his own question. And he answers it like this. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. But even as we read through that, at at first glance, that that raises more questions and problems for us because either that is a works-based salvation, which we know cannot be true, or it leaves us in despair because we are like the prophet Isaiah who, when when he found himself in the holy place, cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." We're all sons of Adam and therefore sinners. But there must must be an answer to the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Leviticus is answering this for us. It's getting us from the question in in verse uh, 3 to the the answer. He, He who is clean hands and a pure heart, it is getting us there. Leviticus is answering that question, but it's doing so in a way that's very shadowy, in a way that is designed to leave God's people desiring the reality and not merely the foreshadow. In other words, in a way that is designed to get us to desire Christ and His gospel, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let me give you my thesis statement this morning, um, so to speak, and then I'll take you there, okay? Here it is. Every Lord's Day, when we assemble for worship, we meet with the Lord in His house with the heavenly host. Every Lord's Day, when we assemble for worship, we meet with the Lord in His house with the heavenly host. So I'm going to ask you two more questions to consider as we work through this. Um, The first is this. This is really the question that we're going to be thinking about today. What would cause someone to say, as Jacob did in Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 and 17, what would cause someone to exclaim this? Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. What would cause someone to say, Surely the Lord is in this place. That brings us to question two. Where is God? Where is God? I think we need to answer this before we can get to the first So on one hand, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12 specifically, tells us that God is omnipresent. 
In fact, the psalmist goes to great pains, great lengths to explain that God is not only everywhere, but he's also omniscient. He's all-knowing. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the night about me, uh, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. For the darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere, to, nowhere that you can go to escape God. But we also know from the scriptures that the Lord is pleased to dwell in a specific place. So, for example, Psalm 2 tells us that he sits in the heavens laughing at the feeble plans of his enemies. He sits in the heavens. That that phrase should remind us of something. In fact, it should remind us of the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, that's clearly a a, a spiritual statement as well as a physical one. What is the heavens? The Bible teaches us that the heavens is, is more than the sky. It's more than just outer space, right? The heavenly bodies. Some of you, I'm sure, went outside right after sunset this week and tried to find the different planets that were visible. You looked to the heavens, But the heavens, according to the Bible, is more than just that. Colossians tells us that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, that he created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We can say that the heavens are the invisible things, the the things that we cannot see without God's permission. What can we know about the heavens? What can we know about this place where, the, where God sits? Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, gives us a glimpse of this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost." For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So even though he is omnipresent, the Lord is pleased to dwell in a special way in heaven, which is his royal temple, which is the true tabernacle, the true temple of the Lord. And it is, it is filled with smoke, it says. 
It's covered like the earthly tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, and we're going to come back to this, but when the construction of the tabernacle was completed, we see this happen. Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's as if, as Genesis chapter 1 says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the tabernacle, the dwelling place. What's happening in the heavenly temple in Isaiah chapter 6? What's happening there? Worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. See, not only is this the place where God dwells, but this is also the place where the angels dwell and they worship. And this vision, this vision here is not a one-time thing. God also permitted the Apostle John to see the same thing. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, does this sound familiar? are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But the angels also have other responsibilities throughout the Scriptures. None of them resemble anything that even, that even looks remotely like Precious Moments figurines, by the way. We don't have time to look all of these up, but let me just give you a couple of examples of the responsibilities of angels. First of all, Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 tells us that they serve the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. They serve God's people, Hebrews 1.14 tells us. They bring God's messages, and, and Luke 1 in the announcement of, of Christ's birth to the shepherds is, is probably the most famous of these, right? They also, they also guard his holy places. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says this. He drove out the man, that is the Lord, drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so let's start putting all of this together because we're in Leviticus which once again, Leviticus chapter 9, which once again mentions my favorite phrase in Leviticus so far, the long lobe of the liver. It's not really my favorite phrase, but I want to put all this together. God is omniscient and omnipresent, but he has also promised to dwell with his people in a special way which was his design from the very beginning, right? Genesis chapter 3, God walked down in the cool of the day and called Adam by his name, but he refused to answer because he was naked and ashamed. So right there in the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the whole earth was his tabernacle. The glory of God filled the earth. But Eden, the mountain of God, the mountain of the Lord, the hill of the Lord. Eden was the holy of holies. It was the most holy place. It was the place where God communed with Adam. And Adam was to work the garden and keep it. 
He was to guard it and and protect it from anything unclean. He was to be perfectly obedient, but he wasn't. He sinned and was banished. And the Lord appointed cherubim to do his work instead. And the pride of man knows no bounds. And so at Babel, man tried to recreate Eden. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And and so God once again intervened. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. But he was also faithful to his promise to send a son who would crush the head of the serpent to do what Adam failed to do, a son who would guard and protect his most holy place. So in Genesis chapter 12, right after the incident of the Tower of Babel, in chapter 11, he chooses Abram. He makes a covenant with him, making of him a great nation with with redemption being the goal. He made them into a great nation in a land that was not their home. And he said to Moses, he says, go and get my people and bring them here to me, to my holy hill. And this is what the Exodus is. Moses leading the people of God, redeeming them as their mediator, going to the Lord on their behalf. Remember when they got to Mount Sinai, where they are when this is written, when this is given to them. They're at Mount Sinai. Only Moses can ascend the hill of the Lord. Only Moses has that that communion, that fellowship with the Lord. But this mountain, Mount Sinai, it's not in the promised land. It's not in a place that is flowing with milk and honey. In fact, it's in the wilderness. But the Lord himself will lead them to the land that he has promised them. And in order for this to happen, he instructs them to build a copy of the heavenly temple, the tabernacle, in which he would dwell with his people and lead them. And so the final 15 chapters of the book of Exodus are all about the details of the tabernacle, everything that they would need for worship on their journey to the promised land. There are specific instructions for the the furniture, for the priest's clothing. There's even an example of what not to do in the idolatry of the golden calf. The tabernacle is to be a portable Mount Sinai. But Exodus has a surprise ending. Turn back to the the last paragraph, really, of the book of Exodus. Exodus 40. This is a surprise ending. Exodus 40, verse 34 says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
God does not allow Moses in to the most holy place, to the tent of meeting. He was the covenant mediator. He'd been the only one allowed to the top of the mountain, but now he, he, he has ascended the hill of the Lord, but now he's prevented from entering the tent of meeting. So who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Moses is insufficient for this. This brings us to Leviticus chapter 9. Moses had been God's chosen redeemer of Israel, but Moses was a man. And the Lord was establishing throughout Exodus and Leviticus, the Lord is establishing a system of worship that would last much longer than one generation. And so we see in this passage that we read earlier here, a transition from one man, Moses, to the Aaronic or Aaron priesthood. The priesthood that would serve as a shadow of the great high priest who is yet to come here. But even in the, in the immediate context, as we look through all of this, what we see is anticipation. Anticipation. Look again at verses 1 to 6. Leviticus 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. So sometimes we have seen, and even throughout the rest of his life, um, Moses sometimes did some, some of the priestly work, even just in chapter 8 at Aaron's ordination that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Yet Moses was not ordained into the ministry Instead, he was a a prophet of the Lord, and Aaron was now the high priest. But Moses was still the prophetic mediator. He was still the go-between. And so his instructions were to be followed as coming from the Lord himself. Their obedience is actually instructive for us, since Aaron and the people were to worship as they were commanded. See, we're going to see this in the next chapter. Worship is about obedience, always. In fact, we could say it like this. It is impossible to worship while being disobedient. See, the word of the Lord calls his covenant people to come into his presence. and So they must do as he commands. But we also know that, that worship is never merely empty ritual. Nor is it an effort to hit you in the feels. In fact, the anticipation of their worship is mentioned twice in these opening verses. The Lord Today, the Lord will appear to you. This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Everything, everything else here is leading up to this. So, 
Remember that question that I asked you to consider at the beginning. What would cause someone to say, surely the Lord is in this place? All of the sin and burnt offerings for the priest in verse 2, and then for the people in verse 3, along with the peace and the, and the grain offerings, the, we could even say the free will offerings of verse 4, all of this was in anticipation that Yahweh would meet with his people. Let me now ask you this. What is your anticipation of worship every Lord's Day? What's your anticipation? Probably you don't think much of the actual worship itself. You're just trying to get the kids dressed and out the door, right? You're just trying to get, you're just trying to live. You're just trying to survive, trying to not get yelled at, right? Or is your anticipation seeing friends or maybe avoiding certain people? Is it in getting a, a, a good and, yea, even improving cup of coffee? Is it singing the songs? Maybe hearing a challenging message? Is your anticipation, is it more critical in nature? Are, are you bored before you even leave the house? Expecting to be bored for another couple of hours? Or are you anticipating being in the very presence of the Lord? Do, do you have the mind of the disciples who in, in John chapter 20 tells us that they were glad when they saw the Lord? Or David in Psalm 63 who says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Well, in order for the people to commune with the Lord here, they need to make a proper approach. A proper approach. Look at verse 7. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering, your burnt offering, and make an atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. The fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with the fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar, and they handed him the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs, and he burned them with a burnt offering on the altar. And he presented the people's offering, and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people, and killed it, and offered it as a sin offering, like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering, and he offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. 
Then he killed the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces in, on the breasts and he burnt the fat pieces on the altar. But the, but the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Now, like with other passages in Leviticus that we've looked at, the first several chapters, we see the repetition of instruction. So verses 1 through 6 is the instruction, do this, followed by the implementation here that I just read through verse 21. And if we break this down, in verses 7 through 14, Aaron offers the sacrifices for his own sin, which is a clear acknowledgement of his own need for forgiveness. And then in verses 15 to 21, he made the sacrificial offerings for the people, purifying them, assuring them of God's forgiveness, dedicating them to the Lord as their Savior, their Redeemer, their God. And he also celebrates the peace that they have with the Lord. And notice the order of this. Purification for sin, the atonement of the burnt offering, the grain offerings as dedication to the Lord, and then the communion of peace at the end. For us, it's a little bit different. In fact, the first thing you should hear as we gather to worship is something along the lines of grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. See, see, we can proclaim the peace at the beginning because it's finished. Jesus said that himself. Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So the first thing that you can hear when we walk in here, I know I've emphasized this before, grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Yet even so, as believers, we not only anticipate meeting with him, that the Lord is in this place in a special way with us today, but we are also to approach him in his prescribed manner as our prophetic mediator has commanded, which is to say, in spirit and in truth. This means that worship must be essentially God-centered. This is made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit, which indwells every believer when they believe. And it's through the personal knowledge of and conformity to the truth of His Word. So I could put it like this. True worshipers of our God and Savior. Worship in spirit that is, the Holy Spirit-empowered, spiritual, supernatural, newly reborn, eternal life. And true worshipers worship on the basis of God's incarnate truth, Jesus Christ himself, the Word made flesh. And these things, spirit and, and truth, they're, they're indivisible. Go home and read John chapter 4. 
well, for the people of Israel under the law here, we can see that following the anticipation, following the proper approach, comes access. Access. Verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from uh, uh, offering the sin offerings and the, pe- uh, the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. I'll just stop there. In order for access to be granted into the presence of God, there must be a mediator. This is where a, a transition begins to take place here. As I said, Moses has been God's man for his people. He was chosen by God at the burning bush. Go and get my people and bring them here to me that they may worship me on this mountain, he said. And even though he had been the only one allowed to ascend the hill of the Lord at Mount Sinai, he was prevented from entering the tent of meeting at the end of Exodus. And don't miss the fact that it it was the Lord himself, it was the glory of the Lord who prevented him. Remember, like David after him, Moses had killed a man. He had blood on his hands. Yet the Lord still poured out his grace and mercy on him. So so the sequence of events here in the worship is this. Aaron um, offers the sacrifices, and then he blessed the people when he comes down from the altar of sacrifices. And this this altar is in the courtyard of the tabernacle. So the idea is that that the people of Israel are on the outside of the tabernacle, and they're looking in. They're watching all of this happen. They're seeing this. They're hearing the animals as, Moses, as Aaron and his sons butcher them. As they burn them, they can smell the smoke. They can smell the cooking meat. They see all of these things. He blesses the people. Then Moses and Aaron together go into the tent of meeting together. Now, uh, just briefly, the, the tent of meeting was inside the tabernacle. It has two parts in the tent Inside the tent, we could say. Um, There's the holy place, which contains another altar. Uh, Sometimes that's called the altar of incense. There's also a lampstand and a table for bread. Um, The other part was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. There was was a veil that was put up there. And the high priest only went in there once a year. We'll get to that later in this book. Regardless, the tent of meeting was the place where they would meet with the Lord. And Moses and Aaron entered together. And this not only only was a symbolized symbolized, um, Aaron's new role as high priest, as the servant of the house of the Lord, but this also demonstrated that the role of mediating for the people, going between God and the people, was being passed from Moses to Aaron. Now, for the rest of Moses' life, as we read through, he dies at the end of Deuteronomy, the rest of his life, he's going to act as a special prophet, a prophetic mediator. He will frequently act as a go-between between God and the people. And yet there will come a time when he will die, and so the priestly role needs to be passed on. And this is what the Lord appoints Aaron and his descendants, his sons, to do. Here's why this is so important. Because of sin, 
There was no way for the people to approach God. There's, there's two flaming angel, flaming sword-bearing angels standing outside God's temple in Eden, right? To keep sinners out and away from the holy God. We need a mediator for access. These priests would stand at this ministry service and they would do so, Hebrews tells us, daily. The Lord graciously provided access into his presence through his prescribed manner and because of their obedience to the law. And so God's people would find assurance that their, for their faith in the evidence of his special presence. They can see the cloud with them, the fire at, at night. They can follow the Lord. And so we see this assurance here, really in these last verse and a half, in the middle of verse 23, when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came, uh, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is a vivid and dramatic scene. The Lord, the glory of the Lord indeed appeared to them as Moses had said. Today the Lord will appear to you. The glory of the Lord may appear to you, he says. And indeed, he, he does. They see the glory of the Lord. The offerings and the sacrifices, they are accepted by the Lord. He consumes them. And his promise to dwell with his people is inaugurated. It is here. We can see it. This scene was for the benefit of the people. And his glory actually would rarely be seen like this again. Usually the glory of the Lord, the cloud, the fire, the glory of God would stay in the Holy of Holies in the tent of meeting behind the veil. Remember, when Moses would go up to the Holy of Holies on the top of Mount Sinai, he, he had to wear his own veil because his face reflected the glory of God and it so scared the people. Notice the response of the people here. God's greatness and his holiness cannot be ignored. When the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Yet because of the hardness of our hearts, we still, we still ignore God's glory. We still ignore God's holiness. At Jesus' arrest, a curious thing happened. John tells us in John 18, verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, that is, those arresting officers, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, and I love this scene. I picture Jesus leaning over, looking at them. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, 
that I am He. This is but a, but a glimpse of what's to come. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, let's bring this back around to that first question. The question I asked earlier. What would cause someone to say, surely the Lord is in this place? Let me remind you of what Paul told the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? See, the, the church is the temple or the tabernacle in which God dwells. Paul will instruct Timothy in, in pastoral ministry, and he, and he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and I want to read this to you in the, in the New King James Version, because I think it really gets at this even better. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the house of God. It is the place where God dwells in a special way with his people. This is why I said in my thesis earlier, every day when we assemble together for worship, we meet with the Lord in his house with the heavenly host. Listen to how the preacher of Hebrews puts all of this. In Hebrews chapter, turn over to Hebrews 12. Keep in mind all of this imagery from the book of Leviticus that we've been working through here for several weeks. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Describing worship. Speaking to the church. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, Sinai, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Moses, was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, and that's, that, that means you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what happens when the saints assemble for worship every Lord's day. This is not the shadow, this is the reality. We assemble with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We worship alongside the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. When we, when we gather together, when we assemble as the church and we sing and we pray, when we are silent before the word of God, we are doing so with those saints who have gone before us. 
We are worshiping alongside Phyllis and Doris and Dave and Juanita. We are worshiping alongside Darlene. We are worshiping alongside my own grandmothers. When we sing and we gather together, that's what they're doing. They're singing and gathered with the saints. We are worshiping alongside the saints, even those that we have loved and lost, along with innumerable angels in festal gathering. We come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of our God. Listen to how the book of Revelation describes this city. It's not like Babel. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22, says this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When we come to worship, we come to Jesus, the the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for justice, but the blood of Jesus proclaims mercy and grace and forgiveness and peace. It cries, it is finished. Surely, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace within your walls, security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Pray with me. Father, as we come to the table, nothing so vividly says it is finished than tasting the bread of life, drinking from the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Nothing says it is finished. Peace to you like the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so, Father, we come to your table this morning 
as a people who have been redeemed, called by your name, called to worship you together with the saints who are enrolled in heaven to proclaim holy, holy, holy. Father, help us to understand these things. Give us the mind of Christ knowing that we can approach you because of him. Father, we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.